Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm Julie Fetty, host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Simone Howe about her new book, Intimate Activism, The Struggle for Sexual Rights in Post-Revolutionary Nicaragua. Simone is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Rice University, where she is also a core faculty member of the Center for the Study of Women, Gender, and Sexuality. Her book, Intimate Activism, is just out with Duke University Press in 2013. Welcome, Simone. Thank you, Julie. I'm really happy to be here. It's wonderful to speak with you today about your book. Can you just start by telling us a bit about yourself before we get into the book? Sure, I'd love to. In fact, I think that's a great opening question for speaking about a book, because for me, every book has at least two stories that it's trying to tell And they're usually very interwoven stories. And the one story, of course, is the narrative or the plot or the argument or the context of of the research in the book itself. And then there's also the story of the author, him or herself, um, that, you know, that comes to bear upon the book as well. And so in my case, I think these are very clearly interwoven kinds of stories, both my interest in the research um, of sexual rights activism in Nicaragua and also a bit of my life history. So I first went to Nicaragua in 1990, and as many of your listeners know, this was the year that uh, the Sandinista Revolution that had taken place in Nicaragua in 1979, uh, the Sandinistas were voted from power and lost power in 1990. So this is the end of a revolutionary period they had been very important for the country, and it also had stood as a kind of iconic symbol of Marxist revolutionary potential in Latin America because it was one of the few successful socialist-inspired revolutions in Latin America. So I was there in 1990, and um, I was just very impressed with how incredibly loquacious Nicaraguans were when they were talking about the revolution. There's still a lot of excitement and fervor and discussion about these principles and about national liberation going forward. And so it was a super, even though it was, you know, the end of the revolutionary period, it was a super exciting time to be there as a young person. And so I got very committed to uh, speaking to people about their politics there, and it was kind of fantastic because you could go into these cafes and there would be, uh, you know, the communist manifesto up on a a bookshelf and you could just take it down and chat with people about that. Or Antonio Gramsci would be, uh, you know, available sitting there on the table next to you um, in book form. So it was, it was a neat context. Um, I was also coming from my own context uh, growing up in the San Francisco Bay area where I had grown up in what I would call a pretty progressive, kind of queer, positive uh, social environment in Santa Cruz and San Francisco. And I had also grown up in a family um, where my grandmother had been in a relationship with another woman for about 60 years. And they never called themselves lesbians, and yet they had done everything. They had been in a partnership and been together uh, for many, many decades, and they had this incredible relationship uh, and yet didn't name it as, as, as 
in terms of sexuality. And so I thought this was also very interesting, you know, how, how do you formulate ideas around sexuality and how much does identity matter? And are these, you know, sort of important litmus tests um, for people's understandings of themselves? So in 1992, I had just finished uh, college. I had just finished my bachelor's degree, and I decided to go back and do volunteer work in a small town in Nicaragua. And that is where I got really committed to anthropology and decided that I wanted to go back and do a doctorate in anthropology um, after reading a really influential book about Nicaragua by by a North American ethnographer. And so I read this book, and it was very inspiring. But the other thing that had happened in 1992 was that after the Sandinistas had been voted from power, a very socially conservative uh, neoliberal regime had come uh, into the administrative governance of the country, uh, Violeta Chamorro. Uh, So she was the first woman uh, president in any Central American country, and yet her policies were anything but feminist in many respects. And one of the things that her administration did uh, through the Congress was to institute... Uh, what was considered uh, the most repressive anti-sodomy law in the Western Hemisphere. And this was a law that had been on the books since the 19th century, but that in 1992 was made much, much more repressive and mandated up to four years in prison for anyone who was thought to be, quote, promoting, propagandizing, or practicing same-sex sexuality. And so here you had this very draconian law that had been put into effect while other countries in Latin America were, in fact, overturning their anti-sodomy laws, Nicaragua was, in my opinion, worsening theirs or making it more stringent. And so bringing together these elements, it became really clear to me that this was an opportunity to understand how people would react to this law. Activism was beginning uh, to foment around overturning the law and rejecting these kinds of homophobic Um, or heterosexist, as people put it, principles. And so I was really interested to kind of follow that story and follow that narrative of how activists were undertaking this work. And, of course, I was just, you know, out of my undergraduate uh, degree, and I had been a major, I had majored in women's studies, and I was at Berkeley, and I was reading uh, Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, you know, as soon as it hot off the press, as soon as it had been published, was very invested in queer theory. And so all of these things kind of came together, and that's how I uh, began the project and have been following it really ever since. So it's been, it's been a really interesting saga, both personally um, and politically, <laughs> as the second wave feminist would say. Well, it sounds like the Nicaraguan anti-sodomy law of 1992 um, not only crystallized a kind of struggle for sexual rights activism in Nicaragua, but also stimulated you to write this book. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a a great way of putting it. Um, It was a story, I felt like it was a story that needed to be told, um, how, how activists were conceptualizing the subject of their struggle. Um, I was very interested, for example, in understanding how they were taking the experiences that many of them had had in the revolutionary period, because many of these activists who were involved in the struggle against the anti-sodomy law um, in general had also been members of the Sandinista Party, had been involved in the revolutionary project, and so they had some of these some of these values that continued on in their project, and so this was um, then translated into these new models. So 
I was really interested to see how these these principles of, of revolution were being transformed into principles of rights, or how you can take uh, the project of national liberation and over this overturning of the state, and then transform some of those politics into a more liberal and sometimes individual understanding of sexual subjectivity. So how they moved from revolution to rights, um, and how human rights became codified and incorporated into into these projects um, to try and combat homophobia um, in the law, but also, you know, in cultural terms. And one of the things that activists often would describe to me was that they were interested in transforming what they call la vida cotidiana, or daily life, right? The kind of daily understanding of, of how sexuality operates in people's lives, um, and then how this works out in law, of course, but also how it could be how it could be shifted and transformed and shaped through activist works in more sort of quotidian ways in order to change the way that Nicaraguans thought about, felt about, and enacted their sexuality in general and how they reacted to homosexuality and lesbianism in particular. And you call this, what you're doing in this book, an ethnography of activism. And you talk about the differences between whether what you're looking at is a movement or a struggle. You're not lucha. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, that really came out of the the ethnographic work. I mean, as, as anthropologists, we try and stay very committed to to the ethos that our arguments and our theorizing and our writing needs to emerge from the data itself. It needs to be ethnographically motivated and. One of the things that I heard early on uh, during my time in Nicaragua uh, in 1992 and then through the research period later on was that, you know, I would look around and see some of these sort of demonstrations that appeared to be sure signs of a gay and lesbian movement. So I'm thinking of rainbow flags that would be hung uh, at intersections or there would be posters and there would be these events and I would say to people, oh, you have, you know, a very strong you know, gay and lesbian rights movement here, in part because of the anti-sodomy law, just in part of, because of the work that activists were doing. And many of them responded, no, this is not a movimiento, es una lucha. What we have is a struggle. And the way I came to understand that was that having gone through the process of national liberation and having lived the politics of revolution and, and upheaval, their understanding of movement was of a much grander scale. Um, and it involved, you know, massive numbers of people, but also in the sense, again, going back to this idea of quotidian practice. So Lucha, the struggle would happen in these kind of small spaces and in these intimate places of interaction between people. And again, in a kind of cultural register or a cultural domain. Um, so, La Lucha became a, a very important gloss for what was happening, and I decided not to write about it as a movement per se. Um, there's an anthropologist, Kay Warren, who writes that, you know, the, the idea of movement has a certain Western grammar to it. It has a kind of teleology. You know, there's a kind of a, an object of intervention, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and an objective. And while activists did have an objective in the work they were doing, on the one hand, to overturn the law, um, this more quotidian kind of practice didn't have necessarily a, a resolute endpoint. 
And so it did, it did reflect some of these qualities of, of Lucha. And then, of course, Lucha is also resonant with many discourses that uh, we hear in other Latin American contexts, political contexts, where struggle you know, takes on a certain quality of, of being of the people and, and by the people and perhaps not as encumbered by a sort of vanguardist um, orientation as some others might be. So I was really, I think in terms of, in the lucha, I was really interested to see how these activists were working as mediators. And I described them as mediators of, of a social space, but also as a, in a space of sexuality and how they were working to redefine these terms of sexuality. So how they were working with the concepts of lesbiana, for example, uh, or the concept of gay or homosexual. How they were using these terminologies in order to inform their politics. So this kind of mediational work. Um, and to see how in some ways it was successful because they were able to overturn the law, ultimately, after 16 years of, of working toward that goal. Um, but I didn't want to just tell a simple story of, you know, this was a grand success, even though it, it was a success and, and, and activists were instrumental, I would argue, in, in terms of overturning the country's law. Um, the anti-sodomy law was repealed in 2007. Right, and then implemented the next year. Mm-hmm. And so there, there was a significant legal change. Um, and so in one, in one way, it is a, a kind of celebratory story of activist work. But on the other hand, I really wanted to examine closely how it was that they were able to contribute to this, this overturning um, and how that, how that took place. So I, I looked at three different scales of, of interaction between activists and the Nicaraguan public or the national body you want to think of it in those terms. And uh, the first scale was what I call a sort of intimate pedagogies, these intimate discussion groups, a little like consciousness raising groups uh, where sexual subjectivity was becoming shaped in these conversations between uh, young women in the case of these lesbian discussion groups that were being hosted in Managua and elsewhere, um, and then also the facilitators of these groups and the kind of didactic work that they were doing. And then the second dimension or scale of activist intervention that I wanted to examine was really based on um, more public presentations and representations of, of what the movement would be and what it would look like. So these were much grander in scale, much more public events, press conferences, parties, um, events, protests in the street. Uh, and other elements of protests that were much more public. But I was also under, uh, interested in understanding these kind of, you know, behind-the-scenes behind, behind the scenes negotiations that activists had around that presentation of, of the lucha. And so this chapter was really about how, how, the, how the struggle for sexual rights comes out, right? It's a kind of coming-out process that's iterative over time. And then finally, the, the final scale of of understanding activist work came with mediation, mass mediation. And so this involved a magazine, the first and ever, uh, the first ever and only lesbian magazine that was published in, in Nicaragua, and then also a series of radio programs. And then finally, a television show that was 
incredibly popular and uh, influential in the country. And so that's the way I, I broke up the discussion to try and understand these different scales of intervention from the very intimate and personal through public manifestations and then finally to these broadcast mass-mediated um, interventions to, to try and transform the way that people were thinking about homosexuality in particular. Yes, and before we get to these three scales or dimensions one by one, I just want to ask you a few more preliminary questions. So this book is about homosexuality in general, but you focus on lesbian sexual rights. Can you tell us why and what impact that has on your arguments? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to focus on um, lesbian rights in particular, some of it was a, a kind of scholarly concern because there hasn't really up till now been enough focus on lesbian women's lives, particularly in the developing or industrializing world in anthropology or elsewhere. So, for example, um, a scholar named Norma Mongrevejo describes it as an archaeological task uh, to sort of unearth the history of, of lesbian lives in places like Latin America and elsewhere, and a kind of project that we should all, if we're able to, sort of turn our attention to in order to kind of fill the gap. Um, in anthropology, there has been a significant amount of work on gay men's or, or men who have sex with men is often an acronym that's used, lives and their relationships and uh, their politics in Latin America. So that, that element had been kind of built out, but it was important for me from a scholarly point of view to try and give some voice to lesbian women in the contemporary context and to give a place to sort of describe their political interventions. The other reason was a kind of more Nicaraguan reason, in fact, again, going back to this idea of really letting the ethnography dictate uh, the theoretical and argumentational direction of the book, and that is that lesbianism in general in Nicaragua and in other places in Latin America, but I'll focus on Nicaragua here, has been less visible than the sexuality of, of men who have sex with other men. Uh, so, for example, in, in Nicaragua, there's a category, it's a derogatory category called cochon, which basically translates to mean fag. Um, and cochones are very well known in the kind of cultural imaginary. I often heard people say, like, oh, see, so-and-so is, is a cochon, and every neighborhood has a cochon. Um, but another anthropologist argued that, in fact, lesbian women or women who, who had sexual and effective relationships with other women um, had no place in the sort of national imaginary of Nicaragua. I didn't find that to be entirely true because there is also a category, again, derogatory for the most part, called cochona, which is a kind of masculine uh, woman who has relationships with other women, with other women, um, kind of a butch dyke, if you want to translate it into kind of contemporary uh, U.S. terminology. So there was an existence of, you know, of these women who were visible to agree, but to a degree, but weren't um, represented either in the literature or in much of the popular imagination. And yet people on the street would sort of recognize cochonas as, as social entities, you know, either for good or for ill. They were either absorbed into the community in a positive way, or they were rejected and, and treated with homophobic violence in some cases, or at least 
social rejection. So that was another reason for taking up the question of, of lesbian rights more generally. There was also had been a kind of contestation between um, feminist pro- proponents of feminist positions and proponents of women's rights positions, and the topic of lesbian rights had been quite divisive in Nicaragua, and so trying to sort of drill down into some of those contingencies between feminism and sexual rights in the country, and feminism had been very important, as had, had gender rights in Nicaragua, and so it had been very important in the country, um, and so I wanted to try and ferret out that relationship a little bit more between between those two different but related ideological positions around gender and sexual rights. Um, and I think also, you know, from a personal point of view, this was something that I was motivated to do um, based on my own experience, based on identifying as a bisexual woman, um, based on my ability to have access to this population. So, for example, in the, um, you know, in the discussion group, I spent so much time, you know, sitting in on discussion groups and I was very much invited to participate in the lesbian discussion groups because I was a woman. And I was able to sit in on the discussion groups that, that gay men were having, but it was a slightly more awkward imposition because the gendering of it didn't, didn't work well. And so some of it was also methodological in that sense of, you know, who, who would be most open to speaking with me and whose voice... I thought needed to be represented and heard more. So those were the kind of general reasons for trying to focus a little more attention um, on lesbian rights and on lesbians in, in general in this context. I felt that it was really important to do so. Indeed. Thank you, Simony. And uh, before we get to your chapter on lesbian discussion groups, can you, I think it's important for our listeners to um, review ever so briefly, as you do in chapter one, uh, the link of political history with sexual politics. Um, So many of your listeners may have lived through some of these events um, that we, that, that resonated in the U.S., in particular um, in Nicaraguan history, but um, Maybe, maybe it would be helpful to take us through. So the U.S. occupied Nicaragua from 1912 to 33, right? hmm And then can you take us through some of the political chronology after that? Yeah. I mean, in the, the chapter where I describe some of the history of, of, of Nicaragua, <laughs> I almost said sexuality because, in fact, that is how it's focused. Mm-hmm. I try and I try and walk through a very complicated political history of the country. Every country has a complicated political history. Maybe Nicaragua just feels more complicated because I've been in it for so long. Um, but to try and understand it through the lens of sexuality, and so I try and narrate that that history through understanding sexuality as a different, as a gloss for different kinds of political action and, and motivation. Um, and so I take the kind of framework of the of the revolutionary period, the influence of feminism, and then the influence or the imposition of U.S. interests in the country. And I think that's part of what you're getting at with your question here. Um, this question of foreign intervention has long been an issue in Nicaragua, still continues to be. And there's this kind of horrifying historic moment in the 1850s, which was a long time ago, but still 
people in Nicaragua remember it well when this um, sort of, I guess you can call him an entrepreneurial uh, guy from the southern United States, uh, William Walker, uh, went to Nicaragua and took advantage of a political rivalry between these two opposing political parties and um, essentially created this rift where he was able to name himself president of Nicaragua. He decreed that English would be the official language of the country, and he instituted slavery. Um, he was ultimately um, arrested and then executed uh, soon after he did this. But this was kind of a harbinger for future U.S. incursions into the country. I mean, this is one man. But then, of course, in the 1980s, and people, some people will certainly remember this, was the debacle of the um, Iran-Contra scandal. So this happened during the Reagan era, of course, where um, arms were secretly sold to Iran in order to then um, provide funding for the Contras, which was a counter-revolutionary army that was operating in Nicaragua with U.S. support. And the Contras were sort of um, renowned for their use of, of really nefarious kind of wartime tactics like bombing soft targets of schools and uh, medical facilities. And all of this was under the, the sort of quiet tutelage of, of U.S. military officers and advisors. So that was a very troubling uh, piece of history for Nicaragua and the United States. And in fact, is considered one of the more, um, more horrifying kinds of acts of international aggression by the United States in a kind of global perspective. So there's um, a troubled history between these two countries, and yet at the same time, um, many of the Nicaraguans with whom I spoke had family in the United States. Almost everyone had at least one family member, often a close family member, who was living in the United States or had been for a long time. So there are a lot of transnational ties between the two countries. And often there was a lot of ad admiration for the United States um, in different ways. For example, among um, sexual rights activists, there was a lot of admiration for the kind of gay and lesbian politics that we've been able to foment in the United States. Um, Same-sex marriage, same-sex partnerships, human rights, and everything. So this would be something that people would index all of the time. They would say, you know, oh, you're so developed um, in the United States with your sexual rights. And we would have very interesting conversations about whether whether that was true or not, or what the distinctions were uh, between Nicaragua and the United States. But um, yeah, the history of sexuality in Nicaragua was um, complicated. It was you know the country was run by a dictatorship uh, for almost fifty years, the Somoza family. It was a kind of dynastic dictatorship, and they had legalized prostitution. Uh, there was a lot of association with kind of nefarious sexuality and the samosas. Um, and under the samosa regime, there were um, gay clubs that were uh, that people would frequent. And some interesting cases of, uh, for example, this uh, woman who in the 1960s actually married her same-sex partner in a public wedding. It was a very successful entrepreneurial business person. Um, she was named Carmen, but she identified as Carmelo, and she dressed in men's clothing, and she had she was quite prominent and well-respected uh, member of the community. So there's some interesting histories there um, in the country. 
Um, when the Sandinistas came to power, they were very motivated to vilify the Somoza regime, which wasn't hard to do because the Somozas themselves had disappeared their political opposition um, and had had dominated the country economically and socially in many different ways for many, many decades and had tortured people and exercised violence in different ways. So it wasn't difficult to vilify the Somoza regime for, for many people in Nicaragua. Um, but one of the ways in which the Sandinistas sought to do so was by taking sexuality as an object um, that they could interrogate and sort of pin in negative ways on, on somosismo. So this association with prostitution and, and the association with homosexuality became sort of markers of the um, debauchery and uh, poor morals of, of the Somoza regime. So this is kind of a political lever in a sense, to, to vilify sexuality and somosismo together. So, for example, one of the first things that the Sandinistas did when they came to power in 1979 was to close down all of the gay and lesbian bars, all the gay bars in town where people had met. And this was seen as a way of kind of closing down um, that, that, that debauched side of sexuality. I put, you know, put that in scare quotes, but... It became sexuality was an important kind of tool uh, politically for thinking through these different um, ways of strategizing politics, and of course, as you, as you pointed to, you know, the kind of reaction to United States imperialism was an important one, and it's something that resonated in people's responses when I would speak with them as well. There were, um, you know, strong feelings about not wanting to be seen as simply sort of copying or adopting uh, North American ways of doing uh, gay and lesbian politics, for example. And this was seen as, you know, a kind of rejection of, of imperialism and these, these incursions that the country had suffered for a long time. And so Daniel Ortega, um, the Sandinista who is now in power, correct, is the president? Yeah, um, so he won the 2006 and the 2011 elections. He's had a longer history, much longer history than that. Um, there seems to be uh, a contradiction um, in legislation passed under his reign with the sodomy, anti-sodomy law being repealed and at one and the same time um, abortion uh, rendered um, entirely illegal. Right. Can you can you explain this contradictory legislation? How do you understand it? Well, this is something that I have spoken with many people about in in the movement and just the general population in Nicaragua about why this happened essentially during the same legislative process that the anti-sodomy law was overturned officially. Um, new legislation was put in place that obliterated a provision that had been, again, in, inscribed in Nicaraguan law for about a century, which was a provision called therapeutic abortion. And therapeutic abortion was something that uh, women's rights and reproductive rights advocates, many of whom I spent a lot of time with, 
had been working to preserve, including marching on the street and uh, filing protests with political uh, bodies and legislators. So therapeutic abortion was very important to preserve um, from the point of view of reproductive rights because it was the only avenue that was available in Nicaragua to terminate a pregnancy if one needed to. And there are many hoops to be jumped through in order to achieve a, a therapeutic abortion. It wasn't something that was easily done. You needed to have permission from three separate physicians declaring that it was necessary. And the reasons why it would be deemed necessary were if, A, the, the pregnancy were the result of a rape, if it were a result of incest, um, or if the woman's life was endangered by taking the pregnancy through to term. So these are a very high bar, if you want to put it in those terms, very difficult bar to pass. Um, and so this is the one provision that existed. And in this legislative session, it's, you know, in terms of the political machinations that occurred, you know, in the National Assembly when, when these debates took place, I, I'm not sure. I wasn't there. I can only sort of speculate from what uh, Nicaraguans who are involved in, the, more closely involved in the politics in the present day have said about it. And they felt that maybe there was some political horse trading that occurred where, um, you know, essentially the way they put it is, you know, the gays were given dispensation and, you know, the reproductive rights and women's rights uh, to choose what to do with their body was sacrificed on the altar um, of gay rights. I mean, that's a sort of dramatic uh, way of thinking about it, but it is troubling because Nicaragua went from having the most repressive anti-sodomy law um, in the Western Hemisphere to now having one of the most repressive anti-abortion laws anywhere in the world. I mean, there are very few countries in the world that currently maintain these kinds of very, very strict um, anti, anti-abortion legislation. So it's troubling. And, of course, immediately after the passage of the law, there were cases of women who were dying from um, botched abortions, um, uh, you know, having the procedure done in unsanitary conditions, and et cetera. And um, Nicaragua is a very uh, impoverished place in, in terms of its economy. It's the second poorest country um, in the Americas following Haiti. And in fact, it's not, you know, in terms of its socioeconomic and development levels, it's just a kind of a notch above Haiti in that respect. And so it's not as though women who have a who have a pregnancy that they need to terminate for whatever reason are able to, most women aren't able to, you know, fly to Costa Rica or the United States to do these things. And so one could argue that it's even more um, dangerous or a, a greater threat to health and rights in a place where you do have more scant resources. So this was a really troubling turn. Um, you know, Daniel Ortega, as you, you pointed out, I mean, he is the, he's an important figurehead in this. One of the things that, you know, Ortega ran many, many times, he was president back during the revolutionary period, but he's run many times since and been thwarted um, from obtaining the presidency except for these last two terms. And one of the changes that he's gone through is that he has gone from being, um, having 
all out, you know, very public political battles with the Catholic Church in Nicaragua to now having um, subscribed apparently wholeheartedly uh, to church doc- doctrine. So, for example, he had a, a common law wife that he has been um, unofficially married to for many, many decades, and they more recently got married in the in the cathedral in Managua, and there's been a lot of kind of public demonstration of his piety and and uh, alliances with the Catholic Church. So many activists and others kind of explain it in those terms. Um, however, that doesn't really describe why, you know, if he has become a very devout Catholic, why um, gay rights would then become um, something that, that would be allowed to to exist. The other the other thing that has changed, and this was interesting too, is that um, in, in Ortega's most recent reigns, they have established an ombuds office, which is run by a young lesbian attorney who's been involved in sexual rights for a long time. And so this is a, an office for sexual diversity, and it's a national level office. I don't know how well funded it is. I suspect it probably doesn't have enough resources probably to carry out the work that it needs to do, but it is an official channel where you can take complaints about, uh, you know, street harassment or violence uh, against gay and lesbian people uh, by the police. And so there is now an official avenue to be able to, to do that. So there have been some positive changes, and then there also have been, as you pointed out, some really troubling terms and... Um, in general, I think you know, I would just describe all of them in terms of the politicization of of these issues um, and the way that they get uh, batted back and forth as political objects. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um, lesbian discussion groups. Um, you you make a distinction in your chapter two about um, types of discussion groups, whether they're um, located in the large city of Managua or out into the countryside and the differences and distinctions you see there. Can you, can you tell us about the, the, the groups that you worked with? Mm-hmm, sure. So um, I attended many different, as many discussion groups as I was able to really uh, that occurred during the 14 months of research that I did. Um, and one of them was with an a NGO, a non-governmental organization called uh, Fundación Xochiquetzal, which is in Managua. And so I attended their discussion groups very regularly. Um, another was a, a more of a grassroots discussion group also in Managua, uh, run by a woman and her partner, her female partner, out of their household. It was a smaller discussion group. They didn't have a lot of financing for it, but they you know, were able to convene their, their groups. I attended several of those. And then the other was uh, in the city of Maragalpa, which is in the highlands, in the coffee highlands of Nicaragua. And so I wanted to see these differences between what was being understood as um, lesbian subjectivity and identity in an urban context versus a rural context. Because this is a very important distinguishing element um, not just in Nicaragua, but everywhere, um, including the United States, in terms of how people are able to kind of think through uh, their sexuality, what kind of community they might have. And it's important to point out that even in Managua, historically, there have never been 
what we would call, you know, gay ghettos in a positive sense, but there's no place of kind of residential community uh, for gays and lesbians in Managua. It's just never been a reality like it was even in other Central American countries like Costa Rica, where you do have, you know, residential areas where this, where you have gays and lesbians living. Um, it never happened in Nicaragua. So there's not really a kind of residential space. But Managua, as the capital city and as a megalopolis, is the center for, you know, more cosmopolitan kind of interaction in the country um, as, opposed to, as opposed to more rural places. And so there are certain influences there. And also in Managua, you have the great bulk of many of these organizations, like gay and lesbian rights groups. Um, and so I wanted to sort of see the influence of that. What I found was that um, in the group that was located in Matagalpa, just on the outskirts of Matagalpa in a more rural setting, is that the women who participated in that group and the woman who ran the group, she herself described the, the participants in her group as much more masculine and sort of, you know, appearing in more masculine ways. And so one of the kind of stereotypical ways that people will describe um, lesbians or women who have effective relationships with other women, if they're more masculine in their gender presentation, is they're described as mangas largas or long-sleeved. And this is based on the long-sleeved men's shirts that they're said to, to favor, right? This is the kind of the clothes that they're believed to wear and often do wear. And so the mangas largas... Um, she had many, she had a lot of more, you know, sort of masculine identified women in her group. And it was fascinating because these women were just much more willing to challenge um, the category of, of lesbian that was being um, sort of used as a pedagogical tool in other settings, in all of these settings, but primarily in Managua. Um, so in Managua, with the NGO and with the more grassroots organization, there was all of this, what I call intimate pedagogical work occurring around the concept of lesbiana. And I argue that really it was a project in a, to try and educate people toward a form of desire. It was kind of an education of desire to both indicate lesbiana as a term and a category that women could ascribe to and that they could take up as a sensibility and a subjectivity. Um, but it was one that necessarily needed to be very capacious, very broad um, in, its, in its description and in its definition so that you would have these conversations about um, orientación sexual versus opción sexual. So what is the difference between sexual orientation and sexual option? So in the discussion group in Managua, for example, we had a, an exercise where we talked about the differences between those two. And it was fascinating because these young women, and they were mostly young women in the group um, in Managua with the NGO, they really described sexual orientation as in terms of when someone puts you on your path to understanding your sexuality. So it was implicitly this kind of pedagogical uh, exercise and practice that you could that you could work through and with someone else. So someone putting you on your path, orienting you towards your sexual orientation. And this was rather fascinating. Um, you know, it, 
given the context that we usually and often talk about sexual orientation as being something very essential, something very innate, something that, you know, we're born with, uh, or it's naturalized in so many discourses in the United States, very naturalized kind of way of thinking about it. And here it was um, much more pedagogical. And opción sexual is how you choose to live your sexual life. So in these discussion groups in Managua, you could most certainly um, identify as a lesbian and, and claim that identity um, as publicly as you wanted to or not. Maybe it's only within the space of these clandestine groups, because remember, these groups are officially illegal. Um, and so they were quite clandestine in terms of, of meeting. Um, so you could, you could claim that identity, but actually never be involved in a relationship with a woman. And so they would talk about these very particular contingencies in Nicaragua where perhaps for one reason or another, perhaps because you have children and you need support, perhaps because of your family, perhaps because of your church, you would need to live a life, an apparently heterosexual life, or be married to a man. And yet if you had uh, sexual feelings or and it, it, that were same-sex, you could claim this sexual option. So they were doing some very interesting things of thinking through and talking about how what constitutes lesbian subjectivity. Um, this was also true in the more rural setting. However, in the more rural setting, uh, the women in that group were just much more ambivalent about the category of, of lesbiana, and they were much more ambivalent about kind of gender egalitarianism. Um, they were more committed to an idea, for example, we had a, a wonderful discussion about the differences between sex and gender, kind of classic, you know, feminist discussion. And one of the women in that group said, okay, well, so, you know, gender is how I, you know, feel as a man and my sex is my body as a woman. So kind of making this split between the two. Um, but she was very convinced, as were many other women in that group, that, you know, being masculine and, um, you know, sort of enacting a more masculinist uh, subjectivity was adequate um, and it should be appreciated. And so this was a, a kind of bold statement against um, the more northern tropes that were being used in the urban settings and by the facilitators themselves who were arguing for a kind of egalitarian form of lesbianism that was more gender neutral. For example, in the, the group in Managua, we watched the film Boys Don't Cry, which is a, the tale of, of Brandon Tina based on a true story in the United States who was killed for um, his transgender identity, female body person who was, who was living um, as, a, as a young man. And in the discussion group in Managua, these women were very very rejecting of the idea that Brandon Tina um, would reject his, his womanness, his, his female identity. And this, they had a, a strong reaction to it and didn't felt that Brandon Tina, you know, was a suspect character in this sense because he couldn't accept himself as a lesbian. That was the, the reaction that they had. From my interpretation of the film, it wasn't about whether Brandon Tina was a lesbian or not, it was really about um, taking up a, a transgender identity and validating that identity. So there were a lot of very complicated um, negotiations back and forth between 
the roles of gender and of sexuality, masculinity and femininity, and how lesbians occupied these spaces um, in between that and how it all registered um, under the concept of la lesbiana. This was, let me just add as a final aside, I think, you know, this is the other important thing about understanding lesbian rights in particular, was that lesbiana was a, a, a term that's emerging, um, you know, appearing in the 1980s, but really emerging more dramatically uh, in, the, in the 1990s as people were adopting this term. And so it was a, a kind of new model for thinking through sexuality. And so one of the arguments that I make in the book is that in Nicaragua, you have always had um, these women who are called colchonas. You've always had dykes, and everyone has kind of known that and understood that, you know, even though it's a derogatory term existed. Um, and now you have a set of sexual rights discourses and human rights discourses that are transforming the cochona into a lesbiana. And it's a, it's a different uh, subjectivity and it's a different form. And given the, the history of sexuality in Nicaragua, um, which some anthropologists and, and others have somewhat problematically called the Mediterranean model, um, there is a particular history to this gendering. So in the case of men, um, it's only more feminized men, men who take the passive role or position in sexual encounters with other men that are stigmatized as cochones, so that men can have sex with other men, and as long as you're always the active partner, the insertive partner, if, as long as you maintain your masculinity, uh, you, you are an hombre hombre, you are a, a bona fide masculine man, and there's nothing queer about you. But if you are on the passive um, end of things, then you're considered queer or a cochon in this kind of this model. Um, and so, too, with lesbians, although there hasn't been enough research, again, about their particular orientation to those ideas, hopefully some of that comes across in the book here, um, cochonas have existed, and they are the gender transgressive masculine women, um, but they are female partners who are often very feminine or what they describe as muy mujer uh, or feminina um, aren't haven't been marked as cochonas. So if you're a very feminine woman, even if you're in a relationship with a woman, uh, having sex with another woman, living with another woman, if you don't enact uh, transgressive gender, masculine gender, you wouldn't necessarily be marked as a cochona. You would just be a regular mujer, um, and you wouldn't be... Um, sort of stigmatized as, as queer at all. So as these sexual rights projects have taken shape, I argue that you have this transformation in terms of um, the notions of sexual subjectivity, where you used to have cochons and cochonas and hombres, hombres y muy mujeres or femeninas. Now you have um, sort of gays and lesbians under this rubric of egalitarian sexuality. Um, where they're both sort of evenly distributed as, as sexual subjects, equally stigmatized, but e equally cast under these, these different identity terms. And Simone, this theme does get woven all throughout the book, and, it, and it's very well elaborated. Um, I just want to leap over Chapter 3, if I may, by, by summarizing it for lack of time so that we can focus on the role of media, your subject of Chapter 4, but chapter three is an important chapter, of course. It's about 
more public activism. And and here you you look at two main um, activist groups: Sexuality Free from Prejudice and Lesbian and Gay Pride. And rivalries is too strong a word, perhaps, but you you discuss how these two groups uh, define themselves differently. You also look at the the um, politics of declaration, if I may, uh, the the act of coming out of the closet, uh, as well as a transvestic performance or drag. And it, and it is an important chapter, but I'd like to move on to chapter four about the role of the media in changing notions, changing culture, as has been the, um, the, the goal of many of the groups that you study um, in terms of how sexuality and homosexuality can be re-envisioned. Can you please tell us about the telenovela Sexto Sentido? Sure, I would love to. This was really one of the really engaging uh, parts of my my ethnographic research, I would say. It was pretty spectacular and exciting because um, the television show had just premiered a month before I, I started my long-term fieldwork of a year uh, in Managua. And it had already been a huge success. It would go on to become even more of a success. Um, the program is called Sexto Sentido, The Sixth Sense, as you mentioned. And it was developed by a Nicaraguan NGO named Puntos de Encuentro, or, or Common Ground, a feminist NGO who had done a lot of work with youth and were also promoters of sexual rights. And Sexto Sentido was singular in the sense that in Nicaragua, there hadn't been um, a long history of television production or movies for that matter. And so this telenovela was, in fact, the first ever telenovela to be produced and filmed and distributed in Nicaragua. So it was this very local autochthonous project um, in a way that no other telenovela had ever been. And telenovelas are very, very, very popular in Nicaragua. And people, uh, you know, sit around the family TV and watch these shows sometimes together, sometimes alone, but they're kind of a a part of of people's daily habits, uh, not just women at home, but but the whole family. And so they're a really important vehicle um, for shaping, you could argue, the way that people think about things. And so this was the project of this NGO, is to try and take that format of the popular telenovela and make it into what I call a social justice soap opera. And so what they did is they... They used um, essentially every ism that you can imagine uh, to be a a vector of discrimination in Nicaragua they treated or addressed in the show. And so they talked about discrimination against racial minorities, um, against people from the Atlantic coast who are largely indigenous or of African descent. They talked about disability rights. They talked about um, abortion and abortion rights. They talked about sexism. Uh, They talked about ageism. They talked about domestic violence. I mean, all of these issues came up in the show. Um, And they saw this, the producers saw this as a way to introduce these topics into the public sphere. And it was very, very, very precisely part of their strategy to make it a dialogic or conversational uh, kind of rubric for families to talk about these issues. And that was explicitly part of their plan. Um, they got funding from USAID uh, for International Development Fund from the United States, uh, among many other 
different funders for the show. So there was international support for the television show. And as I said, it was all locally produced. The screen, the, the script writers uh, worked for Puntos de Encuentro. Um, they hired local actors. And all of the all of the scenes and all of the action in the show throughout was filmed in Managua in these places that people recognized. So it was kind of fantastic because you would see the Mercado Oriental that everyone knows and there it is, you know, on the screen. And so people um, that I spoke to about the show and sat with them and watched the show together, they loved it because it was puro Nicaragüense. They saw it as very, like, purely, truly a Nicaraguan show. And they used all these expressions that were uh, very Nicaraguan, colloquial expressions that, that people recognize as such. And so it had a lot of cachet in the sense it was very localized and um, there was a lot of pride around that element of production. But one of the other things that the script writers and the producers were very intent on doing, and they did this from the very beginning, was to introduce a gay character. And so one of the primary characters in the show uh, is, is a gay man who is, he's out, um, his name is Angel or Angel, which I thought was hilarious <laughs> that he was, you know, named Angel. And, you know, when I talked to this, the script writers and the producers, I did lots of interviews with them, asked them, you know, why, why Angel? And they swore up and down that it was just coincidental that he was named Angel. But it was very funny because he was sort of beyond reproach. And uh, he was this kind of perfect figure. He was a great friend. He was, uh, you know, very good at school. He got this scholarship. He was a total sweetheart in every way. And so he was kind of unimpeachable. And the, the writers described that that's the kind of gay character that they needed to present, was one that was, on the one hand, quite gender neutral in his presentation. He wasn't flamboyant or queer acting in any way. Um, he wasn't particularly macho either, but he was very gender neutral. Um, and he was this kind of perfect subject. And everyone loved Angel. Um, and so that was the kind of gay character that they wanted to have from the very beginning, who was very well-liked. The show was intended for youth, and that was the target audience, was 17 to 24-year-olds. Of course, people who were older and younger watched it, too. It had incredibly high ratings um, in its target audience, up to 80% of its target audience um, on any given Sunday, which was the day that it was screened um, in the afternoons on one of Managua's regular commercial television stations. Um, but it also had great viewership from around the country. So it wasn't just youth who were watching the show, although they were the intended audience. They were sitting there with their parents and their friends and, and brothers and sisters and watching the show too. And so all of these kind of issues, these social issues, these questions of discrimination and marginalization would come up in the show. And then the idea was for them to provide a forum for conversation in family living rooms um, or on the street the next day so that it would get people talking. And so it had this dialogical impetus. But it was very dialogical, I argue, in, in another way as well, and that is, is that they really actively sought out feedback and responses from their audience. And so, for example, I attended a couple of focus groups that, that the show hosted where they would have um, a leader screen um, 
provisional outtakes from the show, potential scenes and scenarios that might happen, and then they would screen these for, for young viewers, always separated by gender. So boys would, you know, see a screening maybe about what on hell might do or say in the next couple of episodes, um, and then girls would watch uh, something else and then have them react to it and get their feedback and then adjust the plot line sometimes uh, based on the kind of responses that they got from their audience. They also hosted a, a letter writing um, contest, I guess you, I would call it a contest, where young people would write in about how the show had changed their lives, what, what they had learned, um, how they had you know, gained strength or learned things about their, their identity or overcome some kind of hardship, in a, um, maybe in a domestic violence situation or a question of sexual harassment. Um, and so they were invited to write write letters, and then the, they got hundreds and hundreds of letters from all over the country, and then uh, the people working at the NGO then selected the winners, and the winners were able to come and meet with the stars of the show, who by this time really were, I mean, they were local actors, but they had really become bona fide movie stars because the show was so popular, and, um, and I think well done. It was done on a shoestring budget um, the producer told me that um, in their grant application to USAID and these other organizations, but you know when they were trying to get the show funded and produced, they described it as a Nicaraguan version of the U.S. television show Friends. So the idea is that you have these friends living together. It's a group of young people who live in this shared household in Managua, and they have all these trials and tribulations. Um, but they kind of overcome them. And so it's got humor. It's not, a, you know, a tear-jerking telenovela, although it does have a lot of drama. It kind of navigates between those two spaces of uh, comedy, uh, you know, little funnies here and there, and then also a lot of high drama um, that happens between these friends too. So um, it, it really appealed to people, and it appealed to young people. And so I think it did have an influence uh, in terms of the way that people understood sexuality through the lens of, of on hell and also another a secondary character that they introduced early on in the show too who was a lesbian character uh, named Vicky and uh, she was a very interesting character because she was they they crafted her in a more ambivalent way I would say than they did with on hell like on hell was um, unimpeachable and Vicky was a more damaged subject in a way she was very likable but she had been abused, sexually abused as a child, and there's a kind of belief and a stereotype in Nicaragua that um, sexual childhood abuse can cause lesbianism, and so one of the things that were tried to do was to disrupt um, or kind of tear apart that presumption, try and break that down. Um, Vicky had also been an alcoholic because of her sexual abuse, and so you know, she had a, a history, and yet she was this very likable character. And so she goes through a whole process of coming out. Angel goes through a process of, uh, for example, telling his parents, who are um, these farmers who live in a very rural setting, very simple folk, that, you know, about his sexuality. And they're upset at first, but then they accept him. And so they go through, the characters go through these these different processes. And the idea is that, then the viewing audience can sort of digest and mirror some of these processes or think through the implications um, and have conversations about them 
at the same time. So it was, um, yeah, an incredibly successful show in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, the point I was getting to that I interrupted myself with is that the producer had said that, again, it was like this television show Friends, but it was done on a shoestring budget so that she described that they could film 400 episodes of Sexto Sentido for the price of one episode of Friends. So those are the, that's the kind of economic difference between these two productions. And yet, um, and yet Sexto Sentido was so, so popular that it was regularly attracting an audience that percentage-wise actually exceeds uh, the viewership of the Super Bowl in the United States. So more Nicaraguans were watching Sexo Sentido every week than Americans watch the Super Bowl once a year. And so I think that's a really significant statistic. If we want to look to statistics, it's, um, it had a lot, of, a lot of impact over the course of the five years that it was on the air. Mm-hmm. Simony, is it available on Netflix? I'd love to see it. <laughs> um, I don't. I'm sure it's not on Netflix. You know, they used to have a few clips on YouTube, and I think you can still get them. Mm-hmm. I would just go in. I would put in Sexto Sentido and see if you could pull some up. I wonder uh, if it was um, exported in such a sense to other Central American countries. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, that's a great point. It had a kind of transnational life of its own, too. Um, there's also a, a North American academic who came and did a whole documentary about the about the telenovela. And so she circulated this, this documentary. It's called Novela Novela. Uh, it went through a bunch of gay and lesbian film festivals all over the world. And Sexto Sentido itself actually... Um, was then screened in a number of Central American countries, and it was actually on TV in the United States for a time through Direct TV, one of these channels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have friends who, it's in Spanish, and so, um, and I don't think it's subtitled. I've never seen it fully subtitled, so you would have to speak Spanish uh, in order to understand it. But the characters are pretty compelling, and um, I was able to, I mean, I spent a lot of time working with um, these actors and scriptwriters, in part because many of them worked at uh, Puntos de Encuentro, where I did a lot of work too. One of the things I did as I was doing research is I was working in these organizations doing volunteer work. And so um, we were working on a database of Spanish language and um, gay and lesbian rights movements in Latin America. And so we were putting together this gigantic database of organizations and alliances that the Nicaraguan lucha could make with others. And so I spent a lot of time at, at Puntos and spent a lot of time talking to the actor who played on Hell and the actress who played uh, Vicky. And one of the great conversations I had with the woman who played Vicky was that, you know, I kind of asked her about her motivation to, to take this role. And I said, well, you know, what was it like when you came to this audition for this role, and they explained to you that you were going to be playing a lesbian on TV. And she said that she was just thrilled by this idea. She's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, it gives me a chance to kind of do my personal work and overcome my own prejudice. And I also get to break apart all of these stereotypes and expectations. And it's a really challenging role, but I kind of take it on. And 
So she was really thrilled about it, and she had this very activist orientation to her performance, right, of her her performance of of gender and sexuality on the show and the kind of political impact that it that it might have in the country. So there was a nice resonance between her personal motivation and her own performance of of this lesbian character. Mm-hmm. Well, Simone, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much for sharing with us the fascinating themes of your book, Intimate Activism, The Struggle for Sexual Rights in Post-Revolutionary Nicaragua. Before we hang up, can you please tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Well, one of the interesting residual effects um, from doing this research that I've done in Nicaragua for so long and, and the book coming out, but also articles, is that I've been increasingly contacted by uh, lawyers who are working for individuals in the United States who are Nicaraguan nationals who are trying to obtain sexual asylum in the United States. And so one thing I've been doing in my spare time is um, serving as an expert witness. And so as of now, I have a pretty good record so far. There are four people now who I've been an expert witness for and who've been able to obtain, successfully obtain sexual asylum in the United States um, because of the increasingly difficult uh, situation in Nicaragua, which I kind of discussed in the conclusion of the book. Mm-hmm. But the other um, piece of research that I've been working on more specifically has very little to do with sexuality, but has a lot to do with rights Um, and big ethical questions of our times. And that is, I'm doing work on renewable energy in Mexico and specifically on the development of wind parks in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec in Oaxaca, which have been really hotly contested um, in the region uh, as violating human rights and territorial rights. Um, And so it's a really very interesting, also troubling dynamic because as I see it, Climate change is is one of the most, if not the most important, social issue facing us in contemporary times. And so I felt it was really important to dedicate my energy and, and, and research time to looking at how these processes of transition can be more egalitarian, uh, more fair, and more just so that we're able to make transitions to better forms of and resources of fuel. Um, and what people are now calling the Anthropocene, this kind of unprecedented time of geologic, biologic, uh, and climatological change. So that is the work now, and um, hopefully a book will be coming out on on that project in the next couple of years. Well, it sounds like a great project, a very important one, too. And I, and I want to thank you so much for being on the show today, Simone. I really enjoyed your book, and I really enjoyed talking to you about it today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.